beginning with verse 10 of Luke chapter 2, And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now we know that Christ simply means the anointed one. So the Savior that the angel is speaking of is the promised Messiah. It is the anointed one. Matthew chapter 2 verse 10 says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. I want to talk this evening for a little while on the gift of joy. The gift of joy. Lord bless you as you're being seated. Thank you for standing. The gift of joy. I believe it goes without saying if you've been in a relationship that even the best of relationships goes through ups and downs. Even the best of them. Like the old man said, he'd been married many, many years, and it's an old, old story, but they asked him the secret to his long relationship, and he said, well, my wife and I decided when we got married that all the major decisions I would make and all the minor decisions she would make. And they've been married all that time. And he said, so far there hadn't been any major decisions. And that's a lot of truth in relationships. When God told me, son, you can live married or you can live right, you can live happy. And I chose to live happy. And uh, but, but even the best of relationships has turbulent times. You're not going to be happy 100% of the time because you married a human being and the human beings are incurably self-centered by nature you didn't ask for it you're self-centered I, I, I like Captain Crunchberries that's what I like I like fruity pebbles. That's what I like. My wife likes all that healthy, you know, grainy type stuff that you feed cows, grain. I like the sweet cereal. There's nothing wrong with it. We just, we like what we like. People get sick. We argue, we whine, we have misunderstandings. Sometimes we're inconsiderate. Sometimes things just don't go right. Not because we're bad, but because we're beings. It doesn't matter in church, out of church, whether you're in Russia or America, you're not going to fix it. That's just part of being a human. The life is not a constant honeymoon. Some days, to be honest, are disasters. You ever had one of those days where you said, I, should, I wish I'd never got out of bed? When I was little, we read this book in school. I'll never forget. The name of the book is my favorite book. was Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. It's my favorite book. 
And as I got older, my, my mom would, would ask me how things are going, and I would just say, Alexander. And she knew it was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. There's some days you just want to you just want to shut everything down and just and 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 start over the next day. That's just part of it. You know it's going to be a bad day when your twin sister forgets your birthday. You know it's going to be a bad day when you sink your teeth into a beautiful steak and they stick. You know it's going to be a bad day when your birthday cake collapses from the weight of the candles. And you know it's going to be a bad day when you put your clothes on backwards and they fit better. There's just some signs, some things you know it's going to be a bad day. And whenever we look for relationships, whether it's in a marriage or a friendship, you'll hear this phrase, I just want to be happy. That's what we look for. We look for that phrase, but the problem is with that attitude is that it's basically a selfish attitude. Because what it says is, I want what I want. whole lot of I in there. And, and, and I've always said that America's three most favorite words are I, me, and my. Because it's a selfish generation. The nature of humanity is selfish. There's an old song, and I'm not trying to bring up a country song, but I heard it probably in a gas station somewhere, and, and it said, I want to talk about me. I want to talk about I. Number one, oh, my, me, my. That's all I know of the whole song. But I, that is the, the motto of America. Let's take it outside of the America. It's the motto of the world. I, me, my. What I like, what I want, all about me. Just a selfish attitude. James says in chapter 4, verse 1, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. The root problem of relational difficulties is a power struggle between two selfish, insecure people. When you think about relationships in their purest form, of any type of relationship, and you look at any difficulties that those relationships have between two beings, bottom line, is you're dealing with two people who think they're right. If one of them didn't think they were right, you wouldn't have a difficulty. You'd have a problem solved. But the problem arises with two people who think that they're right because that's that self-centered nature, thinking, hey, I got the answer to this thing. I know what's right. I know the direction we're supposed to go. For a lot of us, to solve the relational problems we're in, the solution is to stop being self-centered. When you, I'm talking about when you boil it all down and you weed through all the emotions. Somewhere at the bottom is that self-centered person saying, well, what about me? 
What about this? What about what I want? What about what I think? And a whole lot of I in all of those reasonings. James said again, for where envy and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. In other words, you can't be joyful and jealous at the same time. Jealousy is a bitter pill. And when we start looking at people through the lens of jealousy, what happens is our joyfulness has to leave. You can't be joyful and jealous at the same time. Selfishness undermines relationships. If you're in a relationship, if anybody been married any length of time, you know that there's something called compromise. And what is compromise? Compromise is say, you know what? You're probably right about this. Let me push my self-centeredness. Let me push what I think is right. Push it aside. And I'm going to agree with you. My wife used to tell me all the time when I'd say, you know what, honey, you're right. She'd say, say that again? You're right. And for some people, it's harder at times than to admit, you know what? You are right. You know what? You, you do know what you're talking about. And that's a hard thing to do. That's a hard thing for us to, to admit that we're not right 100% of the time. You know, being right is not the same as being righteous. You can be right and not be righteous. But we think if we're right, we're righteous. There's some hills you don't have to die on. There's some swords you don't have to fall on. I'd rather be righteous than be right. I'd rather be in right standing with God. Bible says every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the heart. When, when you have three people walk away from the same event and all three have different interpretations of what happened, not all three are right. They all walked away. You know, if Brother Spanky described this pulpit from his perspective and Brother Brandon looked and, and described it from his perspective and Brother Britt described it from his perspective, and I'm standing back here describing the situation from my perspective, you'd have four perspectives and all are varying. All are different because they all described it from their viewpoint. Different viewpoints. And that's what happens in scenarios is you got people that are in the same situation and in the same problem and they're walking away saying, well, this is what happened. And this one over here says, this is what happened. And all of them are like, well, I'm right. Well, only God knows everything that really happened. You know what happened from your vantage point. You don't know what happened in totality and entirety. So you got to make sure that you put righteousness ahead of being right. Maintain righteousness. How do we do that? We get the focus off of Ourself. You see, we hurt other people in relationships sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. It's a fact of life. You know, you could hurt somebody and not even know you hurt them. There's been times people came to me and said, Well, I don't like how you did this, and I don't like how you did that. And the whole time I'm going, 
I didn't even know I did anything. I didn't even know I hurt you. I didn't even know I made you mad. I just didn't know. It was not with intent. But people can take one little thing that you do or say, and if they're having a bad day, they'll take it and run with it. And you didn't even mean to do anything. You were just being you. Now, there's some people that are abrasive. There's some people that are difficult. That's just, that's people. The fact is, we've all done something, whether intentionally or unintentionally, and we, we did it to somebody, and it's a fact of life. What you do with that hurt makes the difference whether you're joyful or whether you're miserable. See, nothing destroys a relationship faster than resentment. The Bible says, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many may be defiled. What that's actually saying is, when that root of bitterness goes into your spirit, that it's going to affect Many others that it had that have no relation to what really caused the bitterness to begin with. When you start getting bitter and you start getting offended, let me tell you, I lived a long time with offense building up inside of me, and I didn't even know it was there. I remember one time I felt like I hit a wall. I mean, I felt like my spiritual progress was over. And I began to pray, and I asked the Lord, Lord, what in what is going on? Felt like I was backsliding. I said, Lord, if you'll show me, if you'll show me what's hindering my spiritual progress, I'll deal with it. And when you say that, you better deal with it. And the Lord told me one day, he, he, he brought me all the way back to when I was a, high, a senior in high school and he showed me where somebody offended me deeply. I mean deeply. And he said, from that point forward, you've been letting offense after offense after offense pile up. And I didn't even realize it. And he said, you won't grow any further until you deal with what I've just revealed to you. So I mean, I took it serious. I went to prayer and I brought me a, a notepad and a pen. I said, Lord, I'm asking you to show me these things. Reveal them. Bring my memory back, Lord. And as God would reveal them to me and remind me of them, I would write them down. And I was shocked at how that list just kept on growing. Because here's what happens when you get offended. It gets easier to get offended from that point forward. You can get offended and Here's how offended people think. Brother Brandon come up to, can come up to me if I'm offended. He don't know it, but he can come up to me and say, well, brother, that you sure do look nice tonight. You sure look sharp. And here's how offended people think. The first thing they're going to think is, well, I don't always look sharp. I don't always look nice. That's how offended people think. They take something that you didn't even mean. And they, they, they twist it to fit their emotions. And so I wrote those things down, and I began to pray about it. 
And the Bible says if, if you have all against your brother, you go to that person. You don't go to everybody else and tell them about your ought. You go to the person. That's Bible. In fact, the Bible says bring your gift to the altar because God can't take your a gift until you go make things right. And so I called that individual and I said, Brother so-and-so, I need to meet with you. And I went in and I said, Lord, I'm not going in there saying, you did this, 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 and this. I said, Lord, I want my heart right. And I'm going to go in and ask forgiveness for blaming you and holding you accountable for all of these things. So I went and we had a meeting and I talked to this particular individual. And by the time we went through that list, one at a time, and what shocked me is out of that big long list, only one thing raised a red flag in that person's mind where he thought maybe he might have offended me one time. And the Lord impressed me while I was sitting there said, Tyler, you're just as wrong for blaming him for offending you as he was for ever hurting you to begin with because he didn't even know he did anything wrong. What's weird is we'll, we will lose night after night after night of sleep and they're sleeping fine because they didn't know they did anything. You can either take that resentment that you feel and you can let it hinder you or you can put it under the blood and you can let the joy of the Lord motivate you in your journey in living for God. Selfishness brings resentment which eats up emotional energy because you spend all your time resenting the fact that somebody hurt you. It also brings fear, which causes us to build walls between us. You see, fearful people cannot give love and receive love because they're always afraid of being hurt again. And when you're full of fear, there is no emotional intimacy. And when there is no emotional intimacy, there is no joy. There's a lot of people sitting on church pews. They're not bound by vices of the world. They're not living promiscuous lifestyles. They're not out there drinking and carousing and doing all the stuff that we think of as being worldly but they are literally bound by fear. Bound by fear. Fear does three things. Fear makes me defensive. I won't admit when I'm wrong. Fear makes you defensive. In fact, when you look at Peter, he denied the Lord three times. You know why he got on the defense? He was fearful. He, went, he, he got mad. He was fearful. Fear makes you defense, on, on the defense. Kids, you know any parent raising children, and you know you just busted them and you just caught them and you know what they did, their natural atomic nature wants to start denying and get on the defense. You know why they're doing that? They're fearful. And thus you have to teach them, be truthful. I used to tell my girls, I, I remember my, my oldest daughter, 
when she was about three years old. I will never forget. I knew she did wrong. I knew she messed up. It wasn't major, but for a three-year-old, it was major. And she wouldn't, she wouldn't admit and say, I'm sorry. I parked myself in that chair. And I said, we are not leaving this room until you say you're sorry. She was fearful. So she was on the defense. I sat there a long, long time. And everything within me wanted to say, you know what, baby, you didn't, it's, it's okay. But I was trying to teach her. That was a teaching moment. That just because it's better to be honest than it is to lie because you're fearful. People go on the defense because they're fearful. Secondly, fear makes me distant. I won't share my real feelings. Fear brings a gap. There's some people have a hard time opening up. It's not that they don't want to talk. It's that they're fearful. If, 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 let's just be real here. As human beings, if we had open mic night at the Ridge and I passed this thing around and said, tell us how you really feel, nobody would say, tell you, open up and say, this is how I really feel. Nobody would do it. Why? Fear. I don't want people to think anything about me. I don't want people to judge me. I don't want people to say this. I don't want people to say that. You might give a little deal, but I promise you, you're not, you're not opening up Pandora's box and letting it all come out. Because fear. That's why if you get people in a group setting, they're not going to open up. But if you get them in a one-on-one -on -one setting, they're more inclined to open up and tell you how they really feel because the element of fear is removed. Thirdly, fear makes me demanding. I've always got to be in control when I'm fearful. Now, you may not realize it, but there's times where your, your desire to be in control is actually motivated by fear. I'm not going to try to embarrass her, but there's, when we started going to Branson, we get to Conway, Arkansas, and that drive from Conway to Branson, it works on my wife's nerves. And so you know what the solution is? She drives. Her fear of that route motivates her to want to be in control of the situation. It's not a bad thing, but, but it's, the, it's how we're programmed. It's the, you know, I have a fear of being late. I hate being late. I love, I'd rather get there early and drive around the block for 30 minutes, but I'm there. And so, my fear of being late, or I have another, another fear, wanting to leave, and I can't leave. So you know what the solution is? I drive. I ain't riding with nobody. Because if I want to get there early, if I'm driving, I get there early. And if I'm ready halfway through this thing and I want to leave, now y'all laughing because y'all know I'm telling you the truth, which means we got a bunch of people that's doing the driving. If I want to leave halfway through it, I can get in my vehicle and leave. I don't have to wait on anybody. That's motivated by my fear of being in a situation that I can't control. Fear. 
In the spiritual sense, though, the Bible says there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. When you came to God and you got the Holy Ghost and God filled you with his spirit and, and, and you were baptized in Jesus' name, what was really happening is all that fear of the past and all that fear from a sinful nature and mistakes that you made, it was totally dispelled and expelled out of your spirit because perfect love removes all fear. Perfect love removes all fear. I've never seen a sinner God couldn't forgive, but I've seen a lot of sinners who couldn't forgive themselves. In the eyes of God, he, that love, just the light expels the darkness. The blood covers a multitude of sin. When you come to God, you get a brand new start. You get, you, you, it's, it's just like waking up and you're, it's totally clean slate and you can do anything and be anything you want to be in God. But what happens is you keep living for God. That old nature starts trying to come back. You know what that old nature brings? Fear. In fact, when Adam and Eve sinned, the byproduct of fear, of sin, is fear. Now what did they go do? When sin entered the picture, they went and hid themselves. They were fearful. The byproduct of, of, of living for God is faith. The old saying goes, it's like two bulldogs. Whichever one you feed the most is going to get the biggest. You can feed your fear or you can feed your faith. If you feed your faith, it's going to eclipse your fear. Perfect love. See, most people try to do something to bring happiness into a troubled relationship. But happiness is only a temporary solution. What you need in your life, what every person needs is joy. And joy only comes from the Spirit of God. Joy is much different than happiness. Most people think, it, well, if I could do this, or if only I, someone else would do this, then, then I could be happy. If, if, if I could... Well, if I could get this position on my job, that, that would change everything. And you know what happens? They get that position. And it lasts for a little while. But it doesn't change everything. Boy, if I could have enough money and I could go on this place for vacation, that would just that would change my life. They get the money, they go on vacation. Didn't change anything. We have these things that they're temporary that want to bring us happiness. Oh, if we could just have another child, I know it would change our marriage. You know what? It changed your marriage all right. Not for the good. If it was bad before baby number three or four or five, it's going to be worse after another one. We have these, it's called destination disease, where we have a, 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 a point that we're shooting for and we think when we get right here, that's going to be what changes my life. When I make this amount of money, we're really going to be living when I get right here. But the problem is, it's all temporary because life is not a destination. It's a journey. 
The only destination we're shooting for is on the other side of glory. But as long as we're waking up every day and we're living on terra firma, terra firma then we understand I got to still live every day living for God. It's not, it's not about a, a destination I'm trying to achieve of temporary happiness. It's about living for God. You say, well, preacher, the grass is greener on the other side. You know what? There's two things I've realized. The water bill is still there, and it still has to be mowed. Can't avoid it. You can't avoid it. After people make drastic changes, they walk away from marriages, they quit jobs, they switch careers, they move across the country, they build a new house, they build a new car, buy a new car, or they get a promotion. Here's what they don't understand. They still have to live with themselves. And if you're unhappy before all that, you'll be unhappy after all of that. You could go on the other side of the world and, and they live in a different culture and a different language. But you know what? The fact is this. It's still applicable over there just as much as it is over here. Nowhere in the Bible does God advise us to pursue happiness because happiness is selfish. It's not a biblical concept. The word happiness is only used 22 times in the Bible. And it never means what we have been conditioned to think of today. In the Bible, happy doesn't mean having everything go my way. It means blessed or favored by God. We think that the only way we can be happy is if we have no sickness in our body and we have big bank accounts and we have no problems in our life and we have no stress. Then we think, oh, we're happy. But happiness is extremely vulnerable. Happiness wrapped up in people is insecure because people let us down. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I've been hurt more by church people than I ever have been by worldly people. There's no church, no hurt like church hurt. Because you think, how could this person do that to me? When you put your happiness in people or base it off of people, the problem is that people will fail. People will make mistakes. People will do things where you're like, you know what? I, I wish I wouldn't have wish I wouldn't have put all my happiness in them. Happiness centered in possessions is unsecure because material goods deteriorate and depreciate. It's amazing how people can spend ungodly amounts of money on things that are supposed to bring happiness. Yet all they end up doing is saving up more money to buy more things. Because that thing over there that they got last year didn't make them happy. And so I've got to buy this over here, and but I need this over here. And in the end of it all, at the end of it all, when you die, they're going to put price tags on it and sell it for pennies on the dollar. You know what an estate sale is? An estate sale is when somebody passed away, the kids took what they wanted, and they opened the house up and put stickers on everything and let the public come and just take everything. All this stuff that you thought would bring you happiness. And then we're going to give it all away for pennies on the dollar because we place so much importance on things. Happiness based on health is unreliable because time takes its toll on all of us. 
You may not have realized it, figured it out yet, but let me give you the memo. The older you get, you don't get more limber. Time has a way of just creeping up on you. And you don't realize it until one day you go to do something that you could used to do with ease. And you call for backup. And you use the you use the phrase, well, I want to work smarter, not harder. No, no, no. You realize you can't do it. It happens to all of us. I remember there was a there was a uh workout called P90X. You ever heard of P90X? Some of you younger ones? It was this big workout thing that I mean you did this for 90 days and you'd look like the guy on the cover, you know? One of those deals. I remember sitting there, Brother Brandon, eating pizza, drinking Pepsi, watching that thing going. Ain't no way I can do that. If I couldn't do it then, I know I couldn't do it now. Happiness grounded in social achievement is unpredictable because a new star eventually will eclipse you. You know, what I've noticed in society, all these records, all these sports people, there's going to come somebody, there's going to come along somebody that's going to break that record. And you keep living long enough, then somebody else is going to come and break that record. That's just life. There's going to be somebody that can jump higher, run faster, sing louder. So if you base who you are and you find your happiness on so in social stuff, then that star is eventually going to fade. Everything we build our happiness on eventually double crosses us. That's why the world is full of selfish, cynical, and discouraged people. This is why we live in an age of despair. People have tried everything to attain happiness. If, if, if money brought happiness, you wouldn't have all of the wealthy people committing suicide. Things brought happiness, they wouldn't be taking their life. So what brings happiness. Look at where joy cannot be found. Joy cannot be found in unbelief. Voltaire was an infidel of the most pronounced type, but he wrote, I wish I had never been born. Joy cannot be found in pleasure. Lord Byron lived a life of pleasure, if anyone did, yet he wrote, The worm, the canker, and grief are mine alone. Joy cannot be found in money. Jay Gould, the American millionaire, had plenty of that, but when he was dying, he said, I suppose I am the most miserable man on earth. Joy cannot be found in position and fame, for Lord Beaconsfield enjoyed more than his share of both, yet he wrote, youth is a mistake, manhood a struggle, old age a regret. Joy cannot be found in military glory, for Alexander the Great conquered the known world in his day. Having done so, he wept in his tent before he said, there are no more worlds to conquer. Where then is real joy found? The answer is simple, in Christ alone. In contrast to happiness, which is self-centered, the Bible uses the words joy, joyful, or rejoice over 160 times. 
And it teaches us that joy only comes from the Spirit of God living within us, for it is God-centered. And joy does not come from making me happy. Joy comes from making other people happy. God designed it that way. Hebrews 12 and 2 said, Who for the joy was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that was set before him. When Christ was walking towards Calvary, what motivated him was what he was doing for somebody else. He saw in 2018 at Wallace Ridge, he saw people that were going to have the opportunity to be saved. And he said, you know what? That motivates me just to take one more step. He saw your kids that were going to have the opportunity to be saved. And he said, I think I'll go and hang on the cross. The joy that was set before him is what motivated him, what he was going to do for somebody else. You know, it's been said that man can be divided into three dimensions and three phases of life. Earning, learning, or learning, earning, and returning. You spend the first part of your life learning. You spend the, you spend the second part of your life earning. And then you spend the last part of your life returning. And, and there's the older you get, you realize, and I've had this said many, many times, and you know what I'm going to tell you, you elders, you know, uh, I'm telling you the truth. The older you get, you don't get the joy out of getting. You get the joy out of giving. You want to see those grandkids open those presents. You want to be able to return back into other people financially and help bless them. And you get that joy from what you do for other people. One popular myth goes like this. When I get all my problems solved, I'll be happy. That's not going to happen. Because life is simply a series of solving problems. If the only time you learn to have joy in your relationships is when you've got all your problems solved, you're never going to have joy in your relationships. Relationships are divided into two categories, vertical and horizontal. You could have the horizontal right and the vertical wrong, and they're all wrong. But you can have the vertical right, and all the other ones are going to follow. Vertical and horizontal. Life is a series. You know why? You know why I don't like stopping for gas on vacation? I hate it. Here's why. Because when we pull into a gas station, especially with all these young ladies in the vehicle, it's a 20-minute ordeal. You got to go in there and you got to buy them all chips. They're all going to want icy. You got to get candies. I got to get milk duds for the road or Rolos. I got to get all my stuff. But while I'm sitting there in the vehicle, waiting on them, I just get madder and madder and madder. I'm not mad at them. Here's why I'm so mad is I'm watching all these people I just spent three hours passing. 
And I'm sitting there going, y'all got to hurry. We got to, we got to, I got to repass all these people. You, me, and Noah, I'm telling you the truth. And I'm not satisfied until I start seeing cars I don't recognize. Y'all going to think about that next time you go on vacation. We need to make these things quick so we don't lose pole position. And a lot of our frustration in life comes from watching other people that we think are getting ahead of us in life. We're not competing against each other. We're living for God. I want you to, I want you to be blessed. I want, I want you to make it to heaven. I want your family to be saved. We're not competing against anybody here. It's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God. Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, he said, I got to reemphasize this. Rejoice. How is it possible to always be joyful? When Paul wrote this, he was in prison. He was about ready to be executed, and he was writing to the Philippian church. In fact, in the book of Philippians, 19 times he uses the word rejoice. While he's in prison, when things are not going his way, when life is bad, he's saying, hey, you got to rejoice. you got to rejoice. Paul was not counting on his circumstances to bring him happiness. He was counting on the Holy Ghost to give him joy. And You could be in the worst season of life, but still have joy knowing that God is on the inside and he's working for your good in your life. Psalm 1611 said, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. When I don't have joy, it's a warning light that, the, that God's presence is not being active in my life. Joy. Let me give you an acronym. Jesus, others, you. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy might. Love thy neighbor as thyself. And everything else in your life is going to take care of itself. When you love God and you love people. Stand with me as we get ready for our classes to come in. Nehemiah said in chapter 8 verse 10, Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. When you don't think you can go anymore, that's when God kicks in. And he puts that joy working in your life, and he gives you the strength to make it another day. Amen. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful in this Christmas season for the same news that the angel brought, that there is a Messiah that there is a Lord and a Savior. And God, with that Messiah comes the gift of joy. I pray for every person here today that as we continue on this journey with our eyes fixed on you on the prize, Lord, regardless of what circumstances we may face, regardless of the scenarios that we find ourselves in, Lord, let that joy be what strengthens us. Let that joy be what motivates us. 
Let that joy be our helper at our weakest of moments. And Lord, as we keep our eyes on you, let us also be mindful of what we do for others. For that also will bring joy into our life. For the same joy that you got for doing for us, we will get for doing for others. We love you, Jesus. Amen and amen.